and welcome into the show. It is Daniel Orban coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. super early morning wake-up call out west in all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in on this Wednesday morning. Earlier this week, we were able to catch up with Eric Winalda. And we are going to bring you part one of that uh, interview today. Um, and then part two, we will air tomorrow during the show. Um, and we talked uh, a wide range of topics uh, concerning uh, American soccer and the landscape and some of the, 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 the different different byproducts and effects of our current ecosystem and, uh, and, and really talked through some uh you know, specific examples uh, of those by, uh, byproducts and effects. And I, and I think it'll be a really good, good conversation. And as always, he and I have a lot of fun when we chat. So, um, you know, look forward to bringing that to you today. And then part two tomorrow, uh, and that's coming up uh, right after the break. Uh, I wanted to start off the show today, um, really getting into, um, you know, an issue that I, I don't think is really being discussed enough. Um, and, and that issue is this, who should get stuck with a bill right now? No one is, is operating or, or if they are operating, they're operating at full capacity. The entire uh, global economy has slowed down tremendously. There are a lot of people in America without jobs as the economy was was essentially just frozen, put on hold. And in that hold, the longer it lasts, the more jobs we lose because someone is is going to make it have to make a decision um and those decisions that someone is usually a, a manager or a business owner or um you know sometimes it's an employee but there's there's often a bill that has to be paid rent is due uh, payroll is due uh, and and you can only go so long operating that way uh, before you have to make some really tough decisions. And and this goes back to the fact that, you know, we're just in a landscape right now of uncertainty uh, of when we can get out of this combined with uh, the fact that uh, there isn't really operations taking place right now. These leagues are not operating. Um, they They essentially been shut down, many of which... Uh, or several of which have announced, you know, cancellations. So all of the leagues that uh, play this Cape Cod style short summer league, you know, season have all pretty much come out and said we're canceled for 2020, that it's over. Uh, some have said, look, we're going to entertain the idea of, you know, trying to do some type of season in the fall. Um, but for sure, we're done in the summer of 2020. Uh, others have said, look, we're just putting everything on hold until 2021, no matter what. Like, we're just going to wait. We're done this year, and that's it. We're going home. Um, and and so when we look at this, it's it's like a game of financial hot potato. Who's going to get stuck with the bill? We talk about pay-to-play soccer and the effects of pay-to-play soccer on the country, and there are there are major impacts at the youth level, uh, participation, opportunity, access, all of those things are are major major issues. However, um, one of the things that that is not really discussed a lot when we talk about pay to play is that it US soccer has has made this a an adult problem as well. 
and our leagues at the adult level are pay to play and uh the fees um if they're not paid then the league's stuck holding the bill and if they if they are paid then the clubs get stuck holding the bill and if the clubs pay them then where does their money come from oftentimes it's from the participating players or families who who pay to play in that club and therefore they get stuck holding the bill so somebody's going to get stuck holding the bill and in these scenarios the league the federation which filed you know for for economic relief uh from the u.s government the the leagues who could file for economic relief from the government the clubs who could try to file for economic relief from the government the families some of which could file for economic relief from the government somebody's going to get stuck holding the bill and in some cases it may be multiple that are getting stuck holding the bill I'm bringing this up because we've gotten information that there are a couple leagues that are basically taking 50 to 60% of the dues that were paid for 2020 and they are not refunding those fees. They are keeping them. They are not re- they are not refunding them and giving them back to the clubs. Therefore, what are the clubs supposed to do? What are the clubs supposed to do in this situation? Can they fight it? Is there is there a is there a cause uh, or 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 a pathway for recourse? What if they want to demand their refund? If a league doesn't operate, why is that the club's fault? If the league cancels, why is that the, the, the club's fault? Why are the fees being paid and kept? Why are they not returned and refunded? Somebody is going to be left in the lurch. And there's an argument to be made like, look, okay, we're not going to operate. We're going to shut down. Um. You know, here is our here's our operating budget. If we're not having matches, we're not having to do certain things. So here's our our, our salary commitments, etc. So we need to keep X amount of dollars and and to cover those commitments and then disperse the rest. And and clubs can choose if a club has a choice to vote on that, okay. So you're willing to to hold at least part of the bag. You can you're going to eat a loss to, to to keep the league funded and running. Okay, that's your decision. You do you do with it how you want to. If a league's not operating and the league is not providing you any value, is it? Is it a 50 to 60% commitment? Is that money just gone? You're never getting back? That's some of the realities that these teams are facing, especially these adult adult amateur teams that are are looking at canceled leagues and they're they're getting offers of, of, you know, a small credit towards the future. Or in some cases, not you know, not seeing money that was paid this year ever again. Have they have they had the ability to to determine their own fate? Have they had the ability to really make the decision for themselves? Well, every league's different. Why? Because some leagues are member controlled leagues. Some leagues are owned by an individual or a small group of individuals. Some leagues are are a hybrid of the two. 
So some leagues have third-party ownership, meaning there's there's not a club owner that uh, that owns a portion of the league and generally a significant portion of the league. And then the clubs may own the other part of the league or other portion of the league. This, this is actually Major League Soccer uh, for a long time. They had outside investment in the league. And as of now, um, from what I've been told, that is no longer the case, that the league is wholly owned by its investor operators, 100%. But in the past, they had a third-party ownership that owned you know, a significant chunk of the league wasn't necessarily a majority, but was a was a good good percentage, and so uh, that is another ownership structure of a league. So you could have the clubs owning or, or being a member, like a nonprofit member type of league, and the NPSLs as an example of that. You have a wholly owned league like the WPSL where a few individuals own it. And then you have, you know, the MLS example where they had teams that owned portions of the league and then they had out, had outside investment that owned parts of the league. And so when you're looking at all of these different scenarios, you, ha- you have to also look at like what's going on here and what kind of expenses are, is a league in, in their pitch to their members, their member clubs, their member teams, what are they trying to to do? Uh, what are they trying to cover? So if I'm a if I am a member controlled league, and and we meet and we say, hey, look, we've got ongoing commitments here. Are can we each of our clubs? Can we, um, you know, give ourselves basically a partial refund, but keep the league? Uh, operations intact and and we're just going to you know not maybe make some investments in some some things we were going to do to to grow the future maybe we um you know maybe we don't um you know have the travel expenses and some other things so we that's off the table and and we will pay our sal our 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 salary commitments and our other operating commitments. Uh, maybe that's, you know, like a, a rent or lease or, you know, a bank note or something like that. And in the rest, we're going to, we're going to just, you know, because we're not operating, we're going to refund those monies. So maybe that's a choice that you make as a club, uh, in a member controlled league. If you're in a league that's owned by completely owned by third party, owners meaning the clubs don't have a say you're paying a fee to get into the league you're at the mercy of these people and you know when you start adding that up and you look at those fees and you start you know doing the math who who's getting stuck here holding the bag we've seen in some of those cases that it's clubs that are getting stuck holding the bag which Eventually, where does their money come from? Well, now we've got to look at other places where that money comes from. So that money is probably coming from sponsors. It's coming from, you know, members. It's coming from players many times. So who's getting stuck holding the bag? Well, in this case, we're talking about the, the, the players, clubs, communities are getting stuck holding the bag. And the league is not. So one of the things that I would look at in these kind of scenarios is I think the leagues should should be trying to get financial assistance from the government in these programs, these kind of PPP type of programs to cover their payroll and their rent. And that's what the, those programs were designed to do while we're in this downturn and and then I would try to find ways to mitigate the cost for the clubs and allow the clubs to then be able to get some of those monies back to help them be around for next year. Um, but but this is part of 
our issues at hand is that our system is so predicated on having pay to play as part of how we do soccer in this country that the money has to flow up, not back down. Meaning we don't have massive pools of revenue, television revenue, commercial revenue, um, you know, player transfer market revenue that is flowing down the pyramid of leagues and bringing money into these clubs. Instead, the clubs are then having to pay that money up into the leagues to either get access to a higher league or to fund the league they're playing in. And in that situation, what what is the best uh, you know course of action? And you can make arguments on both sides. You know, we, look, we need to try to keep our operations so that we don't have to start over. And so, can everybody like chip in and do that, etc.? Okay, uh, that there's an that's an argument that makes sense to me. There's another argument that says, "Hey, look, re, keep the clubs healthy." And we'll figure out the organization when, once we come out of this. Uh, but we got to have the clubs. Without the clubs, we don't have anything anyway. Um, I, you know, I when I'm looking at it, I, I think you you got to find a balance in the two. Um, you know, if if you're wanting to keep a league that you're in running, then there, I think there is some. Um, some deference that you have to give to them, like how we we got to pay, we've got to do something to kind of keep that part afloat. But I think there, you should have a lot of scrutiny in that. You should be really looking into that, really deciding what it is that you're willing to pay for. Um, you know, could you and should you in some cases demand a a reduction of salaries and and you know compensation um you know i think so um you know i think will wilson um you know right away did that with u.s soccer he said look i'm gonna uh, you know while we're in this uh situation i'm gonna take a, a you know a, a pay cut of 50 percent uh right off the top you know so i, I think that even if it's, you know, a 10%, 20%, 30% reduction, maybe maybe the, the salary is not high enough that you can take a, you know, a, a massive cut, but you could, you could show a sign, give a signal to these clubs, look, I feel your pain, I am also going to take, you know, a, a deferred salary or a pay cut, temporary pay cut during this season, whatever, you know, because... To me, it, it's better when everyone shares the burden. When the league shares the burden, federation shares the burden, the club shares the burden, the, the players, the fans, the community share the burden. When everybody is sharing the burden, we're better off. Um, and, and the reason why is it, it creates a sense of community and camaraderie. We're all having to take a hit here. You create and sow seeds of discord whenever you create a scenario when some people get to live like kings and others have to give up everything. That's not a fair trade. That's not a balanced and equitable relationship. So if a league is saying, hey, we need to keep funds to keep operating, and the clubs are going, but you're stiffing us of all of our money, if you're the league, you got to give an olive branch. You got to say, look, all right, we're cutting this, 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 and this. And so, therefore, that's going to reduce the financial burden on the clubs. We're taking a hit. You guys are obviously also taking a hit, but we're all in this together. We will see better days. I think I think that, that that's an acceptable reality. A shared burden uh, in this season is the right way to go. And... Um, you know, in the absence of that, you create these these issues of discord, etc. So, um, you know, I hope those things change. And one of the things that that I think is is really needs to be on the chopping block is is this idea of, of these these sports organizations trying to get all this money 
for this giant pay-to-play infrastructure estimate it at like 15 billion a year um and that's primarily out of the youth space and they they keep lobbying congress trying to get money uh for themselves this youth sports um industry estimated to be worth 15 billion annually and uh you know, league apps uh, suggest uh, that the the registration fees may be down as much as ninety percent with no games. Um, you know, I I think I think this is a time where a giant rethink is in order, um, and uh, and I'll definitely get into more of that um, either later in the show or tomorrow. Uh, before we get to this part one interview, part one of the interview with Eric Winalda. Um, I first want to tell you about Ductic Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G Brand.com. Um, they are a company that uh, would be very cool to support in a time like this. They are a small business. They're an innovative business. They're a creative business that are doing some really cool things in the soccer space. And you should check them out at DuckTickBrand.com. Place an order. When you do, use promo code DWSHOW. You'll get 10% off of that order at DuckTickBrand.com today. We'll be right back with part one of our interview with Eric Winalda. Welcome back into the show. Uh, Eric Winalda joining us, friend of the show, friend of mine. How are you today? I am surviving. Uh, you know, the weather is, is terrific outside in Vegas, but uh, I've only been able to venture outside for about 30 seconds. So that's, uh, that's all I got for you. But it's, uh, you know, the Winalda family's hanging in tight. Hanging in tight. Well, that's good to hear. A um, lot of stuff in the news, uh, sporting news, especially concerning American soccer. Um, and one of the things I wanted to first kind of just jump right into is, uh, this recent announcement with the U S women's national team case, um, you know, U S soccer kind of winning round one is the, what kind of the way I'm looking at it. Uh, it seems to be, uh, more of a boxing match round by round <laughs> kind of legal fight at this point that the, the women's national team, uh, coming out immediately saying, look, we're going to round two, we're going to appeal. We're going to keep pushing this, uh, envelope uh, and pushing this this whole thing forward um without you know we, you've talked about this publicly i've talked about it on the show about you know the support that is needed from this federation uh in regards to honoring our women's national team and treating them with dignity and respect and honor and i i don't think we have to go down that 
uh, road at, at this point. I think you're on record with how you feel about the women's national team as am I. One of the things I do want to bring up is kind of a look, look back to how we got here uh, mm-hmm. over the last few years. There was a lot of talk going into the presidential election uh, in which you were running in 2018 about, you know, uh, how we handle our women's programs, our women's national team. And you were very vocal at the time about not just uh, support for the women's national team, but I think something that wasn't talked about enough uh, was your uh, idea of really wrapping our arms around, from a federation point of view, the whole whole of women's soccer, the NWSL, the whole you know, fact of, of leagues that come up under the NWSL and support, like just building and really supporting the entire women's soccer movement. Um, as we kind of look over these last couple of years and see where we are right now, how do you think things would have been different had you been successful in 2018 and winning uh, the presidential election compared to the, the aftermath <laughs> that we see right now? Well, I mean, it, one of the things, uh, first of all, it's, it's great to see you, buddy. It's, I, I, I miss our conversations immensely because we got to spend so much time together. But l- let's face it, if we're going backwards here, how much time did we spend uh, talking about this very subject? Almost, I would say 60%, 70%. And the question is, if you're asking me how would things be different, is that we would have had a federation that would have been proactive, not reactive. and what that means is there has never been a recognition from the Federation standpoint um, outside of, Hey, here's your medal. And how can we capitalize on this as opposed to really rewarding uh, our women for, for the successes that they've had and embracing that and be actually having this relationship that's not fragmented. That is we're in this together. Um, I've had that issue with the men's national team for decades that we as a national team felt like we were a, our own little group and we were not only battling against whoever we were playing against that day, but also our own uh, federation who was, was simply trying to manipulate um, our, our path, our, our income streams, everything. So um, the women's national team would have been something that would have gotten a complete it would have been an opportunity to, to just break down all those barriers, cut all that red tape, and just start over. And just start right. a conversation of, hey, guys, how do, we, how, do we, um, how do we get to a point where you guys can, can, can feel that we are a team here? And that conversation needed to come from the Federation first. It's not a sit back, treat them poorly, and wait till they react, and wait till they look like uh, the ones that are, are, are reacting when all they're doing is saying, Hey, look, look, look what we've done. You know, why can't, why can't we have a little, little bit a bigger piece of this pie? I think we've earned it. And for, for us, I think if you and I were involved, it would have been, Hey, let's sit at the table and let's figure this out. Uh, let's figure out where those revenue streams are coming from. We are dealing with brands when, it, when we're dealing with our women's national team, these women are their own brand. And, there are so many ways to find synergy there where everyone benefits. And it, as long as it's going to be this, this, this fight, um, all that 150 million that they were talking about, is going to keep depleting and depleting and depleting until it's down to a nub because we're spending more money uh, paying lawyers to argue about things than we are uh, paying our women for their successes. So that would have been number one. I think we would have, we would have been proactive. Right. To go to the table and say, all right, let's go. Come on. Let's, let's figure this out. I want you happy. I want you to feel the pride that you're supposed to feel when you put on that shirt, not wear it backwards or up there, you know, or inside out and have to make a statement or all that stuff that, that, that goes along with, uh, with, with the platform that they, they have, that they, they didn't abuse it. They were, they were simply that, that I don't want to use that analogy, but when, 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 you, when, you treat, when you mistreat someone that long, um, they eventually start to, to to fight back, and it should have never gotten to this. Where do you think the culture of anti- antagonism has come from in terms of this relationship or attitude towards the national team and, and the, the players? It was short. Sunil Galati. Uh, Sunil Galati is a take it or leave it guy, 
And there's a lot of people that didn't want to engage in those conversations. Uh, and for a long time, uh, he ruled the Federation with, uh, well, don't make that guy, up, get that guy upset because your career is over. And it was all based on fear. So um, that's the answer to that question. That culture is, is, comes directly from Sidney Galati, whether he wants to admit that or not. He has had an enormous impact on the sport. And for those of us who have been around long enough, we can appreciate the good in some of that. The, 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 although the, 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 we're at a point now where, where the voting structure is not, doesn't make sense. And it's, it's all structured to, to keep power in, in, in the hands of power. Uh, and it doesn't uh, give uh, the other leagues or the other organizations enough voting power to, to have a voice. Um, but look, it's, it's a take it or leave it deal. That, that take it or leave it is something that every player uh, that was a part of the national team and or major league soccer had heard at one point through their agent or directly from Sunil. And that culture of this is what we're willing to do and we're not going to bend. And this is my negotiating tactic. Here we go. And I want this over as quickly as possible. And if you fight me, we'll sue you. So that's the culture that, that was, was created. Um, Flynn was, was, was very much a part of uh, moving the paperwork around, but for the most part, that's just the Federation's relationship with uh, the entities that they did business with. And, and in terms of the players, take us behind the crest for a moment. Take us, take us inside the locker room. You don't have to go into you know, names or anything like that, but just give us some examples of what those conversations were like and from a player perspective, having to deal with a federation that, you know, publicly might act like, Oh, we're rooting for our players, but behind the scenes, as you have pointed out, wasn't necessarily always the best of relationships. So what were some of those types of conversations like uh, behind the scenes in the locker room? I was told three times privately and personally that you'll never play for the United States national team again. I was told that when I had 15 caps, I was told that when I had 60 caps and I was told that when I had 80 and I ended up with 106. So it, it, the conversations that occurred um, and the tactics that, that the Federation employed was divide and conquer. Uh, it was scare the younger players uh, into um, basically going with uh, the narrative that, that was coming out of uh, Chicago. So we, if you go back to uh, Alan Rothenberg, for example, um, this, this, these words came out of his mouth. We don't care. We'll put the Olympic team on standby. We'll, we'll put them on an airplane and fly them into wherever you are, and they'll represent us. We don't care about your plight. So it's, it's very similar, or not too dissimilar, from what, what the women are going through now. But to the credit of the group in 1995 and the Copa America, it wasn't a locker room. It was a small little hotel room in Paysandu, where with a, back then, a, a, a box about, about the size of, you know, just, a, just an intercom, where we, we put every single player in a room, and we had conversations with the Federation about how we felt we were being mistreated, and we were in a lockout, and we went on strike. And at the end of the day, we played games. We, it didn't affect us in the sense we actually did very well in that Copa America. We went to the, um, the final four, actually. We lost to Colombia, but we were, we were in a spot where we did very well in that competition, beating Argentina, uh, beating Chile, uh, beating Mexico. We lost to Bolivia and lost to Brazil, but we, we had a great tournament. But the... Greg Berhalter was in that room. Tab Ramos was in that room. Um, these are people that have had, uh, that have relationships with the Federation now. So some of those relationships have been, you know, repaired. But uh, other conversations and words that were spoken at times in heated negotiations um, caused relationships to be frayed. Uh, and those friendships, uh, which, you know, whether they were rather really friendships, um, we're now adversaries. So we had to fight. We had to fight for what we felt was right. Uh, and for the generations that came after us as players, um, it was scary because, you know, if you're not together, if you're not, uh, can, you know, 
all of every, everybody on the same page and you don't have, you know, the, the trust that, Hey, you know what, we're all, we've got this and no one's going to step out of line. But what would happen is, you know, we would have to spend a lot of our time with the younger players saying, I know they're trying to scare you. I know they told you you're never going to have a career and they're going to, and this is really going to affect you, but relax, you're, you're doing this for the better or the, the bigger good. And but that's hard. It's hard to tell a young 22, 23 year old player, uh, you got to go with, with the team. And this is what the team thinks. And those, and those guys were scared out of their minds. Uh, and, and those tactics, you know, they exist in business. They exist in every business. But um, uh, unfortunately, it had a dramatic effect on, on our federation and the relationship with the players over the last couple of decades. Speaking of divide and conquer, you brought that, that uh, phrase up. And I think that is also um, applicable to the conversation of uh, our ecosystem is is very much a separated um you know ecosystem you've got mls operating in their space and nwsl operating in their space you've got usl trying to operate in their space with three different leagues and the talk of a women's league and then this academy project and then you've got every other kind of you know alphabet soup of leagues and associations etc but no one is is linked together um, in the way that a federation, in my, in my view and in your view, uh, you know, should be linked together. How, how um, you know, from a negative impact standpoint, how hurtful is that to our American soccer landscape, this divide and conquer mentality uh, on these leagues, like, like a, a USL, for example, or um, the NWSL that are trying to, you know, make their way, find their space, build you know their leagues and their clubs and their operations but because of this you know inordinate amount of voting power uh, concentrated in the hands of those who have power and we're talking about you know major league soccer and, and don garber who has a very big presence on the board of directors and, and in that professional landscape how 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 you know detrimental is that to our american soccer ecosystem this divide and conquer mentality well i mean okay, have you ever seen the movie american president yeah it's a pretty good movie. It's a more of a love story. It's with Michael Douglas, and um, I always forget her name, but she's, I think she's married to Beatty, uh, Warren Beatty. But yeah, I know you're talking about. I, I ironically, I, I watched that recently. It was, it, it was on Stars or something. I don't know. I it's a great it. movie, um, and because there's a lot of lessons within, and it's pure politics. You know, it's the gun bill versus the the uh, the fossil fuel bill, and and what it is is these different interest groups come into a room and say, well, unless you do this for me, I'm not giving you my vote. And the, the politics of trying to figure out getting everybody on the same page, when you have a youth organization say, well, if you don't do this, then we won't do that. And, and if you, then we don't feel we have your support, then we're going to do something that's counterproductive to the game, but it, it does fit within our agenda. So, you know, whether that's the ECNL or the DA or, or the, you know, USYSA or everybody's fighting with each other over a market uh, to try and, you know, increase their piece of the pie. So that's, um, that's an ongoing struggle. And is, is everybody really seeing the bigger picture? Uh, is everybody asking the one question that should mean more than anything? Does this, does my actions or does my organization make the United States a better soccer nation? That's the one question that every organization within uh, the United States Soccer Federation's umbrella should be asking themselves every day. Not how much can we make out of this tournament or how are we going to spread the money around so people can't figure out you know, what we're doing or what we're up to or how do we reward people within our organization uh, as opposed to putting the money or reinvesting the money uh, back into a system that, that is for the betterment of the players. You know, it, it's human nature. There, there, there's so many parts to this and there's so many people involved uh, that everybody has a, a different way of looking at this thing. But until, and I said this, the last thing I said on the stage when, when we eventually threw the, the white towel and said we were out of this thing, um, was that in, until we learned to, to get along and, and, and stop fighting with each other, uh, and understand common goals and have a real direction as a soccer nation, then we, we probably are going to stay in this, this state of stagnation. 
um, which is which is really unfortunate because I think it's 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 clear that we have more potential uh, than anybody and more resources than anybody. Uh, what the Germans have done, and, and, and they really should be commended here, for their ability to throw egos out the window and for their ability to understand that each uh, club and each um, organization is there for the betterment of the sport. There's a reason why a small little country like that can be world champions. There's a reason. And it's not because they're smaller than us that it's easier to manage. It's that they're all uh, rowing in the right direction. And, and if somebody starts rowing in the wrong direction, they just pick that guy up and throw him out of the boat. And that's not what we do. We try to figure out a way in a very slow, methodical, how do we get this guy to change the way he's rowing? And maybe if we do this, or maybe if we do that, now six months later, the guy's still, now, now, now the guy's got the rows up and say, well, I'm not rowing, I'm not doing anything until somebody does something. Or maybe we, maybe we give him his own boat, right? Get in your own boat, float away. Uh, Those are, those are not options either. So, you know, what what we have is a system um, that is recognizable to the people within it. Change as much as what we, what we realized through that, that, that entire presidential run was everybody was screaming about change and everybody was lying about it. And that's a hard thing to recognize and it's a hard thing to conquer. Because at the end of the day, what we realized is nobody really wanted change. And nobody really cared about the ultimate objective of us being a better soccer nation. They cared about their organization, their small little piece of this huge puzzle that they wanted to protect because that was their job. We're seeing it right now. We're we're seeing a bunch of governors and mayors argue with the president about what's right. And do we open up our state? And do we shut it down? Do, who, who's going to make that decision? Is the federal government going to make that decision? Is, is, is the governor going to make the decision? Or is each mayor in each, each one of these cities going to have uh, a say on that? This is the epitome of, of politics. This is, this is how hard it is uh, to get to a, a, an objective when everybody has a different uh, path to getting there. So scary it's scary and, and what we're going through and what we're enduring as a, as, a, as, a, as a nation right now and i don't know how you guys have handled it i've been in quarantine since march 12th so um that's what they told me to do that's what the government said i didn't take it upon myself to say well i don't think that that's i, I don't think that's the appropriate action i, I follow the law so right. that's that's just me a law-abiding citizen pay my taxes that's what i do i mean that's that's uh, what we have in the, in the soccer community is, is people, you know, out there, you know, I don't think I need to wear a mask. Well, I'm not going to wear one. I'm going to have a flag and a sign that says uh, I, I disagree. So that, that's just that's the that's the difficulty of, of real politics. Yeah. Uh, Annette Binning is the actress that we forgot. I looked that up and while you were talking. Fox is in that deal. Uh, Martin Sheen is in that. Yeah. Uh, great lines and uh the, the greatest line in that that is we have had presidents who were beloved who couldn't put a co- coherent sentence together with a flashlight or something like that so, and they would walk and they would but the question was in the absence of real leadership people will listen to anyone who steps up to the mic they're so thirsty for leadership they will crawl across the desert and when they get to the mirage they will drink the sand they are so thirsty for leadership and the president says Lewis, they're not, uh, they don't drink the sand uh, because they're searching for something. They, they drink the sand because they don't know the difference. And it, there's, there's, some, there's some truth. I'm, getting, I'm botching that thing up, but go watch it yourself. No, I got, I got it, yeah. And, and it, it really is telling because um, at the end of it all, at the end of it all, the, the American president, Michael Douglas' character, gets beat up the whole movie because he has a relationship with a girlfriend. And the entire movie becomes about a character debate. Uh, and I feel like you and I went through that. You know, yeah. my, my divorce got dragged through um, in the New York Times. We had, we had people attacking me, telling, telling you know, my business acumen to the, the fact that I had to do what was right by, for my family. Um, 
and I made decisions six, seven, eight years ago. And then there was this, this idea that there's no way that I'm qualified uh, to, to run for president. So I, I, I get it. I watch that movie and I go, oh, that's, you know, if you want to be in the public eye, be ready because they're yeah. coming. Yeah. Unfortunately you can, you can identify too much yeah. with, you know, with what the, uh, Michael Douglas' character would do. Presidential election, house burns down. A uh, car gets stolen. I, you know, I was just glad to get out of 18. That was, uh, that was my objective there. Yeah, it was brutal. I was watching, um, Emily and I were watching um, the new Apple um, TV series called Home. And it, it like kind of chronicles these different uh, really cool like uh, architecture homes around the world in each episode. So there's this one lady that um, was born in Canada, but like raised in Bali. And she makes these ginormous, amazing uh, houses out of bamboo. Like the whole thing is bamboo. Oh, wow. it's, it's incredible. But one of the recent episodes we watched was Malibu. And they get to a point of the episode on the fire in 2018. And, uh, and I was, you know, talking to, to Emily about, I was like, you know, Dang, that was, you know, when Eric's house burned down and all this stuff. So it was, uh, we I were. My house burned down on the Channel 5 News. <laughs> I know you, you woke me up with that text message going, you didn't send a, you didn't send a, a message or anything other than the video. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I just was like, wait, that looks like Eric's house. Is that your house? <laughs> yup. <laughs> you know, it was, it, I was in the car at, you know, God, 4.30 in the morning um, with my golf clubs. Uh, my expensive tequila, uh, which was, and, and the decanters, the expensive stuff, which is still behind me, by the way. Um, and all my expensive suits and expensive shoes. That, 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 so there's my priorities. <laughs> that's, all I, that's all I got out of there with. And uh, the irony of that was, and, and which, which was really horrible, is I had the 1969 cards, um, the tops cards, uh, uh, baseball cards that were given to me on my birthday. So I had the full set. The, the full set was worth, I don't know, $50,000. And I managed to get that out of the house, right? Oh, you got it out of the house? I got it out of the house, but I didn't get out of my car when my car was stolen eight days later. So you talk about having your all-time all bad years. You, you uh, uh, it was 200 jerseys or something. Now, are we sure that your car was stolen? Because you, you, had, you had called earlier <laughs> and thought that your car was stolen. <laughs> <laughs> my car getting stolen for to give everybody on the on the show a, a recap. There, we were so strung out, traveling all over. You, know. you were coming back from Dubai, right? And I and I and I parked my car at some god awful uh, spot that I I, re I remembered. Um, it was E something or whatever. And so when I got to the spot, which I I remembered where I parked my car, all there was was broken glass and no car. And I called you, I said, you're never gonna believe it, my car's stolen. And then you said, are you sure you're in the right terminal? And I realized that I was in my, whatever, in my state, I was so tired, I was coming back from Dubai, that I was only, I was only one, I was parked in terminal six, or, or uh, the, the uh, six when I, the car was actually in five, and I, was, and I, and I went to six. The funny thing was, is you were, you had convinced yourself because you had seen like broken glass, <laughs> broken amazing. glass near the parking spot or something. Somebody else's car got stolen in that spot, but it wasn't mine. And, and it, it was just, oh God. I mean, there's so many little stories within the, we should write a book or, or just do more of these shows. To, oh, to, I'm telling you, it was, those were great times. That was, uh, you, you weren't happy about it, but Amanda and I had, had a nice uh, laugh at your expense over the, uh, stolen car uh <laughs> out there who have ever experimented with apple cider vinegar <laughs> oh those were that that was that was i wish i had that on video i mean that was you don't, you don't wish you had that on video that was hilarious um just uh just some of our our fun times during that election season um Getting getting back to the the conversation at hand, um, clubs in this country, clubs like that yours in the USL, uh, there in Vegas, um, 
they're at a, an extreme disadvantage compared to clubs around the world for a few reasons. Um, and, and, and a lot of that goes back to finances. So around the world, these, these clubs that are in, you know, open systems um, that has opened up additional uh, revenue streams that has allowed those clubs and leagues are they taking a financial hit right now? Absolutely. No one in, no one in, in soccer around the world is, is uh, escaping some financial hit. But not having all of your financial revenue in one basket, i.e. match day, tickets, cars, etc., cetera, um, and having television revenues, having commercial and sponsorship, having the, the solidarity payment, train, training compensation, the the player market of sell, the selling and buying of players, all of these aspects. Which is the one piece, that, that, that last piece, which a lot of the, the, for whatever reason, a lot of the um, coaches, general managers, and ownership groups are not engaging in. We've, we've had this debate. Have we ever really engaged in the real true soccer business or the business of soccer? Have, have we ever done that? I, don't, I, I would argue no. And I, you know, I, I would go back to um, maybe a good example of this, and, and this is probably why I was so optimistic, is my first uh, managerial position at the professional level was the Atlanta Silverbacks. And I came into that job uh, sideways, meaning I, still, I was still working for Fox, uh, so I was trying to manage both, uh, which was really, really difficult. But because of the structure of the NASL and the, the fact that they played a, a spring and a winter season, or spring and fall, I should say, and there was that ability, that window in between. I was able to sell uh, 19 players in the course of 13 months. I was able to move players on and make money for my ownership group. I'm not trying to brag here, but I, I may have been the first one to balance the books on players exiting. But we were paying these guys a lot, but we were able to uh, move a player like Chris Cloutier, for example, who went to the Colorado Rapids and then eventually to Portland and Columbus. But the way that we structured the deal, it wasn't a lot of money. Uh, it was $80,000 and some bonuses if he, if, if he were to play 20 games. But that money meant a lot to my budget. It meant a lot to my owner that we were able to. So he wasn't paying for um, the next crop of players. A player that, that played for us was essentially paying for it. Poku was another great example. We had him on the, the, uh, the second sale. So the, the club made money off of him. I mean, when we moved, um, you know, Joe Nasco, our goalkeeper, to Colorado again, it's the same story. Smaller deals, too, to teams like San Antonio uh, weren't a lot of money, but they recompensated my ownership group. Uh, for his expenses. Now, the, the good news in that is we were able to do it and I was able to move players out and re reinvest uh, because we had the windows available. They're, they're not available uh, with USL. They're not available with Major League Soccer, so it makes it problematic. You have coaches who, Taylor Twelman was a great example of this. The kid was doing great. And the there was an offer I, I can't remember the team it might have been blackbird i know it was in the epl um and it was substantial it was a three million uh, dollar transfer and it was the middle of the season because that's when they had the money and basically the deal didn't happen um taylor probably could have been uh, an immediate millionaire uh and we would have been able to reinvest that money in, into the next taylor 12 and if you know or the next player it doesn't have to be total replacement but that's the business of soccer that we don't engage in what ultimately happened is he was asked to stay they ended up paying him three hundred fifty thousand, not 3.5 or a million which who knows what he would have made over there and at the end of the day three day three games later danny caleb kicks him in the face he hits the he hits the post and he has a concussion and his career is over that's a reason to be bitter uh in, in my opinion because that 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 was a deal that really should have gotten, should, we should have made that thing happen. And ultimately, ultimately, unfortunately for, for Taylor, um, he doesn't make the World Cup team. And he's the last guy cut. Now the perception of reality might have outweighed reality if he would have gone, uh, scored six or seven goals over there, and all of a sudden his stock is up here. It's not, oh, well, he had, it's 
scored 15 goals in Major League Soccer, and everybody else has done that. But he's over in Europe scoring goals, and all of a sudden there's a, a, an added pressure. And also, the, the value of the player is one thing, but the level of the play and the pressure that, that Taylor was, would have been under would have probably changed the course of his career dramatically. Yeah. I, I just – I look at this, this landscape and, you know, clubs in, in the USL – uh, when 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 fans are on social media going, hey, I just can't wait. Even if it's you know, even if I can't go to the stadium to watch the match, I'll watch it on TV. Uh, I just want them to get restarted as soon as it's safe to restart. But I don't think people really understand uh, because of the lack of that player, you know, transfer economy, the the lack of TV revenue, the lack of the commercial and sponsor revenue. Um, USL, MLS, NWSL, all of these leagues, even into the amateur space, they rely heavily, uh, pretty much in most cases, solely on match day revenue to, you know, they're not necessarily turning a profit, but just an attempt to not, you know, lose tons of money. Sure. I mean, it's not a gushing wound. It's now, it's, it's now we got a couple of band-aids on that thing and it's just, dripping blood off the side right it's not, but it's not the the answer it it, it it shouldn't be i mean i i think the ideally usl which which i think is in, in and alec papadakis has done a phenomenal job of building the business of that um and i think if you were to take the model uh, and, and the way that it's, it, it's built, um, it's an understandable model. But it's also hitting markets, uh, unserviced markets, that, that are actually proving to be hotspots in this country. Um, and then there's this overriding you know, theme of if you figure it out, if you're Louisville, if you're Nashville, uh, if you're Minnesota, or Seattle, Vancouver, Montreal, Portland, Sacramento, St. Louis, th- these are all teams that, that – will now are aspiring to be a part of the bigger uh, component of that. And then that's really at the end of the day is just a really big check to be a part of something. Um, but if USL uh, could increase its visibility uh, through a television deal, the value of the players go up because now, I mean, in, in the modern world, you know, nobody cares where that player came from. They just want to know if they can do the job. Right. And I think people have vastly underestimated the, the level of play in the USL. At times, it's very, very good. There are some teams that struggle, and there's some teams that are solely developing talent. they got 15- and 16-year-olds out there, and it doesn't really matter if they win. Uh, and there's other teams that, that are, are win at all costs. But um, – and, and, and the premise of, of maybe a Portland Timbers 2 or a Tacoma, those players are aspiring, aspiring to play for the MLS team. If they go anywhere, it's going to go within the organization. So they are reserve teams and or academies within. Very seldom do you see um, a player go from, from a USL level, which is, has an affiliate anywhere else but straight to uh, the, uh, uh, the first team. The first team that, that, that's, that's the umbrella company, if you will. So that's unfortunate because, I mean, I look at – I mean, I look at – certain player, which is really, I'll, I'll, let me give you a good example. There, there's a kid, uh, Balu uh, Akinyode, who played for Nashville last year. Um, and he doesn't play for Nashville this year. And he didn't make it to the MLS component of it. He, and Matt LaGrasa did. I think Matt deserves to be there. But Balu Akinyode went to Birmingham, I believe. This kid, for me, uh, in going back to where he came from, he was in New York and, and bounced around a little bit and, and Six foot three, I think six two, central midfielder. Um, this is an asset. This is a player that that if I took a job in the second division in Germany tomorrow, uh, I'd be on the phone with uh, his agent saying, "Hey, how do we get him out of there? Uh, I need him because this is a kid that I see the talent in him. I see the ability, and just because he didn't fit the mold or he just didn't fit the plan, he he doesn't end up playing in Major League Soccer, which is an absolute travesty." Um, it's a big world out there. There's a lot of avenues, and I just think I just think if we could be a little bit more open-minded, uh, we would be, you know, 
servicing our players better. The last thing I'd say to that is that, you know, you go back to when the league contracted in 2001, Don Garber's first real move, um, which in my opinion, I was a casualty of that. I was fired essentially because I was old and we were going to reinvest in the kids. But there was also this overriding theme. We don't have enough talent for 10 teams. We were actually in that frame of mind, uh, you know, 19 years ago, where we didn't think we had enough talent for 10 teams. And now we have, because of some of the, you know, the systematic change and some of the things that we've implemented, uh, some of these things are good. And, and we, we can't bash everything because players are being developed. Are they being developed all the way to the extent? Of, is the trajectory hitting a, hitting a certain part and stopping at times? Yeah, it is. But we have too much talent. We have too much talent for the teams that we have, and that's a good thing. So the growth that we see is, is you know, we, we refer to it as cancer at times. Mean, cancer will grow any direction. It's not a right. tree. I mean, we don't have a pyramid. We have a tree. The tree just grows where it wants to grow and wherever the sun's coming from. Uh, but I, I do think that at some point, at some point, this country is going to, to wake up and realize the potential and the opportunity right in front of their face. That was part of uh, part one of our interview with Eric Winalda. We're going to bring you the other part of that interview tomorrow, part two. Big thanks to him for uh, spending some time with us uh, talking about all those issues, and we will get into more of that, as I said, tomorrow. Uh, our sponsor this half hour is Charity Water. If you want to know more about uh, making an impact on the world and in making a difference in the world, Charity Water is a great uh, place to get started. Go to charitywater.org today to learn how your story can be part of their story in providing clean drinking water to people all over the world. Learn more at charitywater.org. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. You could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Thanks for watching the show. That is it for today. As I said, we'll be back tomorrow with part two of our interview with Eric Winalda. Thanks for watching. As always, you can watch at DanielWertman.com forward slash watch to find your options to uh, watch the show or you can listen to the podcast later on your favorite podcast platforms. That's all for today. We'll see you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.